Good evening. Welcome to the prime. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Groups Thursday night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. We're gonna have a friend come up and tell our joke for the night. First off, thank you, Mark. How you guys doing? I'm your recovered alcoholic joke teller this evening, and I've got a joke for you. All right. So a so a five dollar bill walks into a bar, and the bartender says, "Hey." This is a singles bar. <laughs> so moving on, <clears throat> I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Mark. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that are not Zoom or Facebook related, or it's going to make noise, it's going to distract you from the meeting. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. If everybody's ready, we're going to start the meditation. I'll see you in a couple minutes.
Okay, so at this group, we lead the meeting with the fog light prayer. If you don't know it, just follow my lead. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked someone to come up and read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it's kind of important to know what one is. I got Ryan coming up here. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have never, nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been, been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think that this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concept. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. So please refrain from disturbing others while this group is going on. It's constantly getting up, sitting back down. That's for us here. This is a tech-free meeting. Um, turn your phones off to airplane or meeting mode or just turn them off for all you Zoom clientele out there. Um, you know, just try to stay focused. Um, cleaning the house and eating and all that other fun stuff can, can wait till after the meeting. Um, otherwise, we'll, we'll kindly stop your video, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> happened to me. So, uh, we got Keith tonight on his eighth session. That's two-thirds of the way through for all you math people. Um, it's been great so far. The uh, Joe Bear joke has been worn thin, so I'm not going <laughs> to... Bear, whatever. Um, so that's Warren Thin. So I'm just going to bring Keith up tonight. He's been doing a great job, and I'm sure he's going to bring way more to the table tonight. So here's Keith. Good evening, everyone. My name is Keith, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here tonight. 
Um, yeah, we were talking before the meeting, and I love coming here because no matter what kind of day I've had, Mike and his guys are such welcoming and take the edge off and stuff. And uh, I was talking to my dad before this meeting, and, um, you know, he mentioned that uh, he saw my nervousness the first week I did this, and I told him, which I've, it'll probably happen until the day I die, I get nervous doing this. And uh, God usually kicks in at some point, so I'm ready for you whenever you want to kick in. But, uh. <laughs> um, yeah, so tonight's our eighth session, and, um, you know, I just... I've been thinking a lot about my life lately. Um, like last month was my recovery sobriety date. And this month, uh, you know, my birthday, my belly, belly burden birthday is next month. And so I've been sober 17 years. And again, I take no credit for that. It's by a loving, forgiving, awesome God. And I couldn't have said that 17 years ago. But um, Joe had called me Monday, speaking to Joe, my best friend. He'll be following me after this, so... Yay, Joe. But um, he called me Monday and told me that a gentleman that was in our place had uh, passed away, um, I, I think Sunday or sometime last week. So that was the third guy that I personally knew that was a part of our house and stuff in this last year. And, and um, you know, I, I sit back and for whatever reason, they couldn't or wouldn't grasp this way of life. And uh and I, me and Joe were talking about it, and, um, you know, I, I I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I'm here. I do, but, you know, what makes me different than those guys? So keep those gentlemen's families in your prayers, and, uh, yeah. But this is a uh, this whole program is a prescription or a recipe on how to live life. And thank God, God put guys in my life that were armed with the facts and, and didn't sell out on me and didn't give up on me. And held me to my highest and, and had me living the life today that I could never imagined. So t- tonight we're on um, eight. I'm going to try to keep it to eight, but I'm sure I'm going to talk about nine a little bit. But uh, just to recap a little bit, you know, I came in here a broken man. A broken man wanting to uh, not live anymore. And, um, you know, that's a very humbling thing to say. Like, I, I say I'm su- I was suicidal, but not really. Because I, 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 I couldn't kill myself because I was a coward, but... Man, I just wanted the pain to stop. I just wanted how I was living to stop. And I didn't know how I was going to get out of that. Because if I knew how to do that, I would have done it. But I didn't. And, um, again, I always say God is the ultimate chess player. And he brought me to Florida for some reason. He put this woman named Lorna in my life for some reason. She got me to Joe for some reason. And, um, you know, that's where my life began. And this is how I began to learn how to live life. And, you know, not spend a lot of time on one and two, but, you know, it's, it's all about the surrender. And, and I believe a lot of guys have a problem with that surrender step. I believe all that we're looking for when we get to a, a place of uh, detox or treatment or halfway is just the pain to stop. And it does. Life gets better once you stop drinking and drugging. But that can't be it all. You know, that can't be your your whole input in this thing. You know, like I love when Pat, when Pat hears people say, you know, do 90 and 90. Yes, do ninety ninety is true, but tell them the rest of the story, right? Do the rest, do this work, and so you know, Joe and John taught me what my problem was, what made me an alcoholic or a drug addict. You know, algae obsession. I got that crystal clear. You know, that lived for me. Uh, Twenty years of drinking and drugging. I got evidence, so I don't need any to be beaten over the head with that step. 
Step two I had a problem with, you know, coming to believe in a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I'm not a moron. He, they're talking about God. And oh, that backed me up when I heard that. Like, I wanted nothing to do with God. And as I say that, I said a couple weeks ago, not totally true, because when I was in trouble or in a jackpot or in jail, I, I believed in God. I believed in that cosmic bellhop, that uh, Bush League pinch hitter, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't believe, but so that's step one and two, knowing I can't solve this problem, knowing I have this thing that's going to kill me, and then believing in something that can restore me to sanity. Same thinking when it comes to drinking and drugs. So let me get to step three. I make this decision. Am I in, Keith? Keith, are you in? Yes or no? If I say yes, I'm starting to write, right? And we talked about a couple weeks ago, this four-step inventory. And I did this four-step inventory, and um, it wasn't a pretty sight. Like, I had never looked at myself in that way, right? I've been a masquerader, a performer uh, for most of my adult life, you know, um, and I just, it, it was amazing to see who people got when I showed up on the scene, right? And for the first time, I saw the truth about Keith, right? Because before this part of my life and before this four-step inventory, again, I, I, I've been all over. Life wasn't always bad. I didn't grow up poor. You know, I, I had a very nice upbringing, but I made some decisions in my life that brought me to where I was, and I saw that in the four-step inventory. I saw that... My constitution and who I was was um, a liar, a cheat, a scumbag. My word meant nothing. Uh, um, you know, just a terrible person, right? Not like an evil person, but just a terrible person. And, um, and I saw this. And so during this part of the process, you know, I, I'm with my sponsor and I'm with Joe, and again, Joe's teaching me things. I'm at the place, and again, I have no accountability, no responsibility before I get to AA. You know, I lived life like it was, you know, whatever. Like whatever, whatever today is, that's what it's going to be, right? I lived life as, um, you know, my my career. I wasn't born to be an alcoholic. I wasn't born to be a bum. You know, I'm the oldest grandchild in my family, so you know, I, I had aspirations or whatever. Me and my dad were talking before this meeting. You know, I, I went to the Marine Corps, not by choice, but it was one of the best decisions I ever made, you know. And uh, when I got out, they taught me things. They instilled things in me like honor, integrity, you know what I mean? And that went by the wayside once I got back to, to the real world. And, um, you know, so I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got to be retarded again. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. Just like the Marine Corps breaks me down and build me back up, this is what AA does, right? This is what Joe and John were basically my drill instructors in AA. And so I see that four-step inventory, and I know myself a little bit better. I see the truth. I see the stock and trade. Keith, this is why your life is screwed up. Of course your life is screwed up, given how you're showing up. And um, in the presence of God and my sponsor, we do a fist-up inventory where I take out the trash, where I tell this man my life story. And uh, I think that's where it gets confused in the book because they get down some part in the book where it talks about the life story, and people think that's what the four-step inventory is. That's not. You know, the four-step inventory is a catalog, very precise, very to the point. And um, I look at these, um, this, this four-step of my fist-up, and again, my sponsor held me accountable. When I started with the yeah buts, the yeah buts, because up until this point in my life, I'm a victim. You know, circumstance has me being 35 and homeless. Circumstance has me getting three DUIs. You don't understand all this crap, you know, and, and that's how I live my life, from a victim, a victimization conversation. And he pointed out to me that, no, you're not a victim. You authored everything that happened in your life. You were the author of all this carnage in your life. 
Man, that was a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, but you don't understand. When I was in Georgia, these cops were racist, and they pulled me over. No, Keith, <laughs> you were driving drunk three times. The same cop saw you twice and pulled you over. What did you think he was going to do, right? And so for the first time, I'm, I'm like, wow. But I told you last or two weeks ago, I didn't tell that man everything, right? I had a warrant for my arrest, and uh, thank God I didn't drink over that because secrets I hear take you out. But I kept that secret because I, don't, I didn't trust, you know, up to this point, Joe had never lied to me. He'd, he'd been like my brother from another mother. And, uh, well, he's like that now, but he was my teacher. and He never lied to me, but I couldn't trust to tell him this, that I have a warrant and that, you know, somebody's out there looking for me. But he, he found out because you can go online and, and see these things, right? So I do the fist up inventory, you know what I mean? Again, I'm invested now. I'm starting to get a little hope. By this time, I'm like four or five months sober. I've had a drink or a drug. Yeah, the thought might have came, but I didn't act on that thought or, or, or uh, want to go out and drink. So something's working. So I'm getting a little bit of hope, you know. Um, I talked about how my family didn't know where I was for five, six, seven years. Again, this is true. We're going to talk about that tonight with this uh, A-step in that list, right? So one through five is done. Doesn't take a long time if you're committed you can get through this very quickly. But nothing's changed. I just know myself a little better. I'm still the same person, but nothing's changed, right? Recovery has not taken place. I just know myself a little better. Then we talked about six and seven last week. This is where the real work takes place. Six and seven. These are the transformation steps. This is where the change starts to happen, must happen, because I'm, if I'm going to go out and do the rest of the work, especially in eight, nine, that must happen, Right? A lot of times guys come in here, and I've seen it from what we do. They come in, hadn't thought about their family or their kids in a year, six months, whatever. They're out there doing their thing. And then once they get that white chip and they're sober like five or six days and they're fellowship with the boys at the house, oh, I want to go say sorry to my kids. Oh, I want to go make amends to my wife. But you're still the same person, right? How many times, how many years have you done that to your wife and kids? Like to give them a little hope because you're, you're abstinent today and you go back and say, I'm sorry, before you're ready. Right. And thank God for Joe and John. And um, so during my my experience with this, this step, you know, so six and seven, you know, Joe had me get on a game plan. Um, who are you going to get when I show up on the scene? So we talk about it in the morning. I get up in the morning in the presence of God. I sit there and I talk to God in the morning and I envision my day. I envision who I'm going to see. I envision who I want them to get. Right? If I had a problem lying, I promise not to lie today. God, help me not to lie today. If I had a problem being late for work when I had a job, God, help me not to be late. Right? And, and by this time, you know, as I told you guys before, my jobs up until this point of recovery was always restaurants because that's the best job for an alcoholic or drug addict. They don't drug test. You get paid every day. And if, you got, if you're in good with the bartender and the cooks, you got your free meal and you got booze and, and you know, you're good. Right? And my dealer met me at the bars all the time. So I, I was good. That was, my, that was my career, so to speak. So when I get to this place, I'm unemployed. Mom's paying my rent, 35-year-old, irresponsible guy. I'm thinking the nature of the exercise is as long as Joe gets his money, I'll be able to stay the same. And I see that nowadays with people and other establishments. Not to judge, but it just is what it is, right? They don't care if you get sober or not. As long as you pay that rent, the, re, the, the relapse fee, you're good to go. But keep coming back, right? Thank God that Joe and John weren't like that. So in my case, you know, mommy's paying my, my, my bills. This is a woman I hadn't seen in seven years, but mom, I need rent money, right? Selfish self-centeredness to the core, page 62. 
I finally get a job. And uh, first job was labor pool. Told you guys that, right? By this time, there's humility. There's no, like, I don't care what it looks like to you guys. I'm not out there impressing anybody. This is about my life. And Joe taught me that. I need you to have skin in the game. So it doesn't, you're not here for a career. We're not waiting for you to get the perfect job. No, you need to pay some rent. You need to get some food. So I did labor pool, 42 bucks a day. Joe got 22, I got 20. I was all right. You know, finally I got some skin in the game. My next job was making eight bucks an hour. Now I'm balling, right? AC, AC uh, assistant or whatever. Never done that before. I met this guy at the 101 club. He gave me a job. Next job I had, which I have now for the last 15 years, met my sponsor at the 101 club in the pool towel business. Never, never knew anything about pools. Been there for the last 15 years. Talk about that a little bit later. But that's God, chess, Pete, chess player in my life. Right? So six and seven, six and seven. I'm trying to become... And six, I'm asking God to kill that man. I discovered in step five, four and five, right? I want him to die. Literally take him and kill him. And step seven, help me to become the man I want to become, right? And this is a daily thing, even to this day, right? So I'm at the halfway house. I'm doing this. I'm doing six and seven. I'm doing six and seven. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying. I'm all in now. I'm seeing guys around me fall by the wayside. And... um about eight months in, it's time to go make these amends. So we get back. Let's look at the exact nature in step eight. And this is why I said a couple of weeks ago, don't throw away your four-step inventory, right? I've heard sponsors or sponsors say, let's go to the beach, put in a bottle, and send it out to sea. Let's bury it in the backyard. Don't do that, you know what I mean? Unless you're going to make a copy. But you need the four-step inventory for the rest of the work, right? So on this four-step inventory, eight, step eight says, made a list of all piece of people we had harmed. So I got this list in step four, right? And so my list, I go back now and I, and I look at this list and I want to find out the exact nature of the harm or the wrong I did to these specific people. Um, again, my list was some criminal with a lot of family, you know? And uh, so I'm 10 months sober. Um, I hadn't, again, hadn't seen my brother, sisters, and father in a long time, but mom, had, she'd seen me once when she came down, when she got that call, again, the exact nature of the harm for her was mom hadn't seen me in five or six years. She gets a phone call for the first time about me at three in the morning from a lady in Florida, a Jamaican lady. And you know, when you get that, when your phone rings at two or three in the morning, nothing good happened after 12 o'clock. You know what I mean? So it's not a good phone call, right? So I don't know what that did to her when she got that phone call at three in the morning. But she got the phone call and it said this, if you look... I'm a friend of your son's. You don't know me, but if you want to see him alive again, you'll get on the next plane, you'll come down to Florida. Man. How do I repay that? Like, how do I fix that? Right? How do I fix worrying her for six or seven years? So when I go to make these amends with my mom, I get home, 10 months sober, Joe puts me on a plane. We say a prayer. I'm fearful now because, again, I tell you, I don't care what you think about me, but I do care about what you think about me, especially my family. You know, like I told you, I'm the oldest. You know, I wasn't always a drug addict and alcoholic. I went to a good school. I had good grades before I found drugs and alcohol. So it's embarrassing to go back home with my head between my tail and, uh, and make these amends. So we get a plane ticket. Me and Joe, my sponsor, we got a, a game planned. Um, I told you last week that... Uh, 
layovers for me were the best time to drink and, and do things. So as I'm on the plane, getting ready to fly from Fort Lauderdale to Charlotte, I'm scared. Like, this is my family, so why should I be scared? Like, you know what I mean? Like, they're my family. Like, you ain't going to, to the police, <laughs> which I had to do that too, but we'll talk about that. But um, so I have a layover in Charlotte. As I click closer to Rochester, New York, I'm getting more scared. I'm getting more nervous, and the edge is starting to come. And uh, I'm at my gate waiting for my plane. My gate is next to a bar. And now the obsession of the mind, the, the, the craziness is coming back, right? My mind, wants to, my mind wants me dead, right? It does. So it starts telling me things like, you know what? You just need a Budweiser and a shot of tequila. Take the edge off. You ain't had a drink in 10 months. You can handle just one. Um, you look around. Nobody knows me in Charlotte, so nobody will know. And I'm just like, man, a drink would be nice right about now. So I said, whoa. Moment of clarity came in. I go to the bathroom, on my knees in the stall, air put full of people. And I say, God, please help me remove this thought, remove this obsession to drink. I'm on a mission to help me to get home and, and, and do it. And he took the obsession away, right? So I get home. My mom picks me up at the airport, go to her house, and we have a heart-to-heart and you know, I make this amends. And now, her, in her loving way, she didn't want to hear it. You know, she was like, she's just glad that I'm okay and that I'm safe. But I was like, no, Mom, I, I really need to let, let you understand that I know what I did. And uh, by God's grace, and hopefully it'll never happen again. And I say that to say, so my amends to her will be until she leaves or I leave, this me staying sober. This That's going to be my living amends to her, right? So then she gets me in the car and we go, around the neighborhood and we go to my grandmother's house and my aunts are there and a couple cousins and we go, I go in the side there and I sit them down. Uh, grandma's passed, but my aunt owned, lives in that house. And another aunt lives there and uh, a cousin. So I do a little fist step with them and I, you know, make amends for disappearing and stuff like that. And again, they forgave me all this stuff. I had made up in my head of what they were going to think about me and what they're going to say was all made up, right? My mind just plays tricks on me. And they were just happy to see me. They were happy to know that I was alive. And then they could tell it was, I was different. Like, it wasn't like, hey, I'm sorry. Because I've said sorry my whole life, right? And I talked about it last week. When I say I'm sorry, it just means I'm setting you up to do it again, right? But this wasn't I was sorry. This was, I was wrong for doing what I did, you know? Like, these ladies practically raised me, literally. Like, babysat me, fed me, clothed me, everything. And so, got that done. Um... I can't remember exactly what was my dad, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So my brother, right, he, they were on my list. I told you how him and my sister Kimberly and my brother told me this, that they were, when I disappeared, they were like so desperate to find me. They were going to call Oprah or something crazy like that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't know that I had done, hurt them the way I did. Again, my sister... I think it's 10 years younger than me. My brother's 12 years younger than me, right? So we weren't, like, close, close. But, you know, my, brother, my father talked about, he brought me out to live with them when I was 16. And, again, emotional terrorist that I was, I wanted to hurt him the way I thought he hurt me. And so, yeah, when I moved out there, he did his best, and he let me get away with certain things for a little bit. But after a while, it's time to go get a job. After a while from that, he saw me coming home, the same old, same old. It was time now. You got two choices, no three choices. Either get out, go to school, or go to the Marine Corps. Well, getting out and being homeless is, I don't do homeless very well. 
School, I knew would have been a waste of money. You know, I'm, I'm book smart, but I'm not, you know, at that t- point in my life, I was all about the drinking and drugging. If I went to school, it would have been one big party, right? So I chose the Marine Corps because I didn't think he knew anybody in the Marine Corps. And I just thought he was joking about the Marine Corps. Well, little did I know, I go out one night and he's waiting for me. He's watching TV and I pass out upstairs and there's a knock at the door at five in the morning. There's a gunnery sergeant at the house and uh, I signed up that day begrudgingly, right? So this is what I did to my father, right? So we'll get back to him in a second. So my brother, right? Now me and him are like, like thick as thieves. But I didn't understand the exact nature of the harm. Like, yeah, I was gone for six or seven years, and yeah, you really didn't, you know, miss me and all that stuff or whatever. But we were talking when I got sober, and I still lived at the sober house. And uh, we were talking, we talked like once or twice a week and stuff or whatever. And he was asking about my story, and so I was giving him bits and pieces of my story, and I guess it was like hour we talked on the phone and stuff, and uh, we hung up, right? So three days later, Joe calls me and tells me he got a letter from my brother. I'm like, what? He goes, I got a letter from my brother. I got a letter from your brother. I'm like, really? He goes, man, <laughs> it made my heart sing. I'm like, really? So he let me read the letter. And I, I forgot about that. So then as I'm preparing, like, again, I, I try not to script what I'm going to say, but I, I, I prep, prepare a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to get up here and just freestyle or whatever. So we have a website and not promote my place, but on that website we have testimonials. And I remembered this morning at work that Joy put that testimonial on on the site. And uh, I hadn't read the letter in years, but I, I went back and I, re- and I read the letter. And I want to share it to you, with you guys because I think it'll bring home when we talk about the exact harms or what we do to people. Because again, I told you guys that in my mind, when I was out there doing my deeds and doing my dirt, that I wasn't hurting nobody about myself, right? That's, that's my thinking, and I'm thinking that's true. Like, I wasn't robbing my parents and brothers and sisters. I wasn't like, can I live on your couch and none of that stuff. I'm like out here doing me, so I'm thinking that everything's okay, right? But here's the letter that Joe, I mean, uh, that Howard wrote, my, my, my best friend Joe. Um, so it says, I was up last night talking with my big brother, and I was in awe just listening to his story. In that hour or so, it dawned on me that I was finally meeting my brother for the first time. Growing up, I wanted nothing more than to be just like Keith. Unfortunately, of the 12 years age difference and not being raised by the same parents, I always felt like I had a big brother, but not really, if you get what I mean. When it came to playing basketball, I always told myself if I could just be Keith, then I would be the man. I was a man back in the day. Uh... <laughs> I played varsity basketball in ninth grade, get recruited to play D1 basketball, and possibly play overseas somewhere. However, the reality was I never got a chance to play my big brother in eighth grade because he was gone. I ended up making varsity in 10th grade and got a significant amount of letters from a couple of schools, but none to the magnitude that I envisioned if I only got a chance to play my big brother once, one-on-one. Maybe I would have played D1 ball somewhere, maybe. Maybe not, I guess. From the ages of 12 to 22, I told myself that the person I always looked up to was dead. I had no idea that he he thought that. Given what he was going through at the time, in his mind, I'm sure he felt that way he was. 
I have no idea what it's like to go through the things that you, Keith, and so many others go through when it comes to addiction. But I'm so thankful that the Lord brought me up, my brother, to Florida and to you and to solutions. I do not know what you actually saw in Keith that made you reach out to him. But if you had not, in my mind, I'm sure my brother would have really been dead. Last night he was talking about his legacy and the things he wishes to accomplish. And at that very moment it dawned on me that the legacy that you, he, and so many others leaving up for, are leaving around behind for so many others is mind-blowing. I do not even know, even if he understands, to what magnitude. Most people do things that they do for money, power, respect, things of that sort. But you two, it just seems as though you're doing the very thing you're supposed to be doing. I do not exactly know what that is, but I do know that most people spend their entire lives chasing the thing that the Lord would not have them or would have them do. The most intriguing thing about the journey that you two are traveling on is that you do not even seem as though you care about accolades. You just want to do for others what was done for you, and that is saving one life at a time. As a police officer, I too strive to generally do the right thing and ultimately save lives. I feel if I'm able to save just one life, then I would have been doing what I was supposed to be doing. After listening to my brother, I want to do as much more than that. I want to leave a legacy that I, my family, and the Lord will be proud of. At the end of the day, I just want the Lord to say, job well done, my good and faithful servant. I just want to tell you, Joe, that I am t eternally grateful for you allowing me to meet my brother for the first time. I've been alive for 32 years and have never been given the opportunity to meet my big brother until last night at 10.30 p.m. I do not know what you saw in Keith so many years ago. I'm just glad you did. Hmm. So when I read that, again, I, how, how can I make an amends to, to that, that exact harm? I never knew he felt that way, right? I never knew that <laughs> I was dead to him. And not because he wanted me to be, but I was dead. I was gone. I left. And then even when they was talking to me, I was dead, right? Dead inside. Everything barren. That's the harm we're talking about, people, when we talk about go back and look at the exact nature of the harm, right? So, again, my amends to my brother is going to be a living amends for the rest of my life. With my family, the rest of my life, a living amends. I try not to cry because I'm a Marine, whatever, but uh, even reading that to this day, even when we talk nowadays, that, that blows my mind. Like, how selfish was I? Right? And I didn't even know he had those thoughts. So, again, I'm going to be making that amends for the rest of my life, right? With my father, you know, we had a heart-to-heart -heart as my sobriety went on, and, um, you know, I told you how he asked me when I was 16 that I hate him growing up, and I did. And I played the victim, right? Let me, let me punish him for not being there for me. This is what I made up in my head. But as I get, come to find out, he was checking up on me. He was taking care of my responsibility with my mom and stuff. So as long as I've been sober, right, we've, we've been coming to have this, this, uh, this relationship that's been transformed, right? That's what this process does, right? I'm able, if he, he, he transforms broken people, right? He transforms me. But he also transforms these relationships I had with people, right? These, all these things get 
reborn, right? A different relationship. So me and my dad had a conversation one time and, um, you know, we're talking and I've been sober, I don't know, a couple of years and, you know, we don't talk about the past. We know it's all good now, but I forget, I think he might've came down to Florida to our house, the solutions, one Thanksgiving and we were talking and, um, he smoked a turkey for the guys at the house and we were sitting there and, you know, as we were talking, he started sharing with me things, right? So I told you how, you know, he got fed up with me and sent me to the Marine Corps. Well, at the time when I went into the Marine Corps, Operation Desert Storm had just happened, right? The first Iraqi war. And uh, when I was in boot camp, my whole graduating class pretty much went from boot camp to Iraq, right? No choice in the matter. Saddam invaded. You're all going. So I go over to Iraq, you know, and scared, like, whatever, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm 21, I'm, I'm in Iraq, 120 degrees in the daytime, 30 degrees at night. No shower for the first 77 days, waiting for the engineers to come set us up or whatever. And as the war starts kicking up, you know, my unit was one of the, we were one of the first forward people forward. And uh, my pop is watching this on CNN back then, was showing the war every night, like from different angles and everything. And my dad's watching this on TV. And uh, he shared this with me. As he's watching this war, he's saying to himself, what did I do? I sent my son to that, right? When he gave me those choices, he was hoping I was going to choose college and take a couple classes. But me being a hardhead, <laughs> I chose Marine Corps because I didn't think it was serious. I promise it's water. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, he was scared for me because he blamed himself for sending me over there. And uh, we talked about that. And I was like, no, Pop, it, it was, you know, it wasn't your fault that I went to Marine Corps. And you, you know, I know you were worried about me, but it, it, you, didn't blame, you didn't tell Saddam to invade Kuwait and stuff. And me signing up, that's what I signed up for, right? That's what we do. But the fact that he felt that certain way, again, only God, I believe, could produce that because of what I've done to, to them, you know. Um, my sisters, you know, I got a sister named Miko and a sister named Kimberly. My immense them is always living, right? Kimberly's been down here, you know. Um, she'll ask me things about my, my life, and I don't, I'm not ashamed to say I'm an alcoholic. You know, people talk about, like, anonymous and all this. No, I scream it from the rooftops. I am an alcoholic. I've been able to live two lifetimes in one life. So if anybody ever has a question about that, they ask me. And so me and her, we talk all the time now, you know, at least once a week. And uh, again, I live in immense to these people. The rest of my family, right? I got a cousin or two that have this problem, you know, but it's not for me to judge them. It's not for me to, to declare them an alcoholic or drug addict. When they want help, they know where they can come to. But until then, they're not. So this, 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 uh, this eight step and nine step, and again, uh, I, I've been speaking for 17 years or whatever, and it's hard for me to do eight without nine. So I'm probably going to recast some more stuff next week, but I'm going to talk about nine a little bit, right? So I talked about it a couple weeks ago, this um, amends, because there might be somebody out there who didn't hear the story a couple weeks ago. I jumped the gun by telling the story a couple weeks ago, but there might be somebody out there right now who was in the same situation as me. Like me and Mike were talking before the meeting jokingly, of course, that 
I think God speaks through people. You know, I know he speaks to you guys. And when I go to a speaker, I know he speaks to them. And when I go to church, he speaks to that person. So if there's somebody out there right now, because a lot of us come in here, we're not angels. A lot of us come in here with warrants, um, charges, right? So my other um, amends, the exact nature of the harm I told you was the Georgia thing. And um, where I'm from, we don't turn ourselves into the police, right? It's a, it's a, a badge of honor, you would call it or so what. And um, I had this warrant for my arrest. Now, here I am in Florida. I'm three, four years sober. I'm sponsoring guys. Again, I kept this secret for three to four years about the warrant for my arrest. So I think. And, um, you know, at this time, Joe... Uh, is is coaching me and you know again my brother talked about purpose in life and all this stuff and I told you a couple weeks ago I didn't have a purpose when I got here but if I'm an alcoholic my purpose has been determined for me is to get sober go back into the darkness and pull somebody else out right but how can I do that when I'm still I got this secret right I still got this this thing and and I can remember you know people talking from the podium about their experience and again my situation wasn't unique I've heard a, a guy talk about going back to prison for years for murder and stuff. And I'm like, man, that's crazy. Right. I was at the, uh, the world convention in Atlanta back in 2015. The best speaker to me was the guy that they brought from prison who had killed somebody. He had to do 10 years in prison and the man, and, and it really, it, it, it struck me because he said the same thing I said to the guys when I was in jail, but he said to 60,000 people, you know, he was drinking and driving, and I believe he killed somebody, vehicle or manslaughter or whatever. And he got sentenced to like 10 to 15 years or whatever. And in prison, he discovered the steps and he got with a sponsor and did the work and got sober. And he was asked to come speak at the international convention. And he said that um, even though he's in prison, he's the most free he's ever been in his life. And I just had goosebumps and chills because... I didn't have to do years, but I can relate. I can understand what he was saying. And that just, it, 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 man, I got goosebumps thinking about it right now. So in my journey with this, you know, I'm living dirty. Not really, but I, I, I'm not all the way in. I'm not all the way free. My past is still dictating my future. I couldn't see a cop without being fearful, right? But here I am sponsoring guys. Here I'm speaking at the podium and stuff, and it's just not. I'm not completely whole, right? I, I still have that non thing at me. And so Joe comes to me one day and he says, it's time. And I'm sorry if you heard the story before, but I'm sure there's somebody out there who hasn't heard the story. And if you have a warrant, hopefully this will give you the courage to take care of it. But he um, says, it's time. And I said, time for what? And he said, it's time to go take care of Georgia. And I'm like, what? How do you know about Georgia? And again, I didn't know that you could go online and just look somebody up. Like I thought that was like a a violation or something like, you know what I mean? Like I remember being at work one day and a guy, a guy posted my picture cause I got arrested down here in Florida for possession of cocaine. And, uh, <laughs> I'm at work one day and this guy had printed my mugshot out from BSO and posted it in the break room. And man, I wanted to kill, I wanted to kill this dude. Right. Cause nobody knew I, you know, I wasn't telling nobody that. Right. So Joe found my, uh, thing and, uh, said it's time. Again, here's God, the ultimate chess player. By this time now, I got money saved. My brother lives in Georgia. My cousin lives in Georgia. 
So we make a plan. I call my cousin. I say, hey, I need a lawyer. Because I didn't want to go in front of a judge with my charge with a public pretender, right? So I wanted to get a lawyer. And uh, so she got me a lawyer. And this guy, when he heard my story and what was going on, he, was, he gave me a little break on the price or whatever. And uh, he gets me a court case. And uh, me and Joe, Joe, again, preparation is key. Like a game plan, preparation is key. Joe, John, my sponsor, had me go around and get letters from people in the AA community. They had me go get letters from my boss. They just had me go get character references, right? And um, again, who I was before I got here and who I saw in those papers that people were writing about, I was like, who is that guy you're talking about, right? And so I get these letters, and then uh, Joe says, you know what? I'm going to go up there with you. What? Okay. So we get a plane ticket. We go up to Georgia, and uh, at the time, we go to my cousin's house out in the boonies in Georgia somewhere, and I find out that my mom is in Georgia because I got a big family. She's in Georgia visiting my cousins on her side. And she had no idea that I was going to Georgia to take care of this. Again, God, the ultimate chess player. So I call her, tell her what's up. I find out she's in Georgia. I tell her I'm in Georgia. I said, come over. We're at Darcell's. We uh, get to Darcell's house. They cook this big spread. I'm thinking, again, my mind wants me dead. My mind plays tricks on me. I'm like, three DUIs is bad. Three DUIs in six months is horrible. Um, you ran on the third DUI. You're going to do like five, ten years in prison, right? This is what I'm telling myself. And Joe's like, bro, Keith, God didn't bring you this far to drop you. I'm like, yeah, Joe, it's easy for you to say. You ain't about to face the music tomorrow morning. And I'm, not, I'm just whatever, right? Four years sober, haven't had a drink in four years. Joe's never lied to me. I still don't have faith that he's going to do that, right? Yes, God's a central fact, but he ain't going to do that. You know what I mean? And uh, I just wasn't buying it. So we had that dinner. Next morning, we get up that morning. We pray. Joe sees the fear in me. Again, I tell you, I'm not scared of nothing. But when I get here, I'm scared of everything. Fear creeps back in. I'm going to prison, Joe. He's like, Keith, you're not going to prison, man. God has a plan for you. Joe, I'm going to prison. No, my brother, you're not going to prison, right? So I had a, my Sunday best. I had a nice three-piece suit with some penny loafers. I was looking tight. And uh, <laughs> I, um, we go to court that morning. My mom's in the courtroom with us. The judge calls my case first, which I was like, well, how is that possible? Um, I go up in front of them. The judge is like, where you been, Mr. Neal? Like, mind you, now the charge is from 2000, now it's 2007. So it's been seven years, and I'm finally answering this charge. And I tell him, you know, I tried to make a little light joke of it about it. I was out doing some more research and development. He didn't find that funny. Um, <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't in a joking mood. So they read my charges, three DUIs, uh, failure to appear, when they release you on R&R, all this stuff, right? And so the judge, after they got done reading the charges, he looks at the prosecution and says, hey, what do you want to give Mr. Neal? We'd like to give Mr. Neal three years in prison, uh, $5,000 fine, two years probation. I'm, as he's saying this stuff, I'm trembling, and I'm seething at Joe, right? And uh, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, man, I told you, Joe. They would have never caught me, whatever. So 
my lawyer then tells the judge, Your Honor, Mr. Neal, he's been sober for four years. He uh, Here's some character letters from the people in the AA. So the judge takes them. He sees all the letters. He reads a couple of them. He says, I'm going to make my ruling. Man, I'm sweating bullets. His ruling was, we're going to give Mr. Neal. Mr. Neal has been rehabilitated. I'm going to give Mr. Neal three weeks in jail, 18 months probation, and like a $2,000 fine or whatever. Right? I'm inside like skipping and, and, and cartwheeling and stuff. I look back at Joe. He's just smiling like he knew. Like he already had it with the judge or something. My mom's crying. I'm like, it's all good, mom. We're good. Um, yeah. So I went to jail for those three weeks and come out. I'm a free man. No more. Right. No more. So I come back to Florida, tie this all up. Now my past can't hurt me anymore. Nothing. Right. I think that since I took care of this, I'm getting my license back right then and there. No, the judge has this, the law has another say in that matter. The clock doesn't start ticking until you turn, take care of that last charge. So I had to wait five more years for my license. Now, before I got sober, I was driving illegally all the time. All the time. Because it was my right. I fought for my country. All this bull crap I made up in my head. No. So for the next five years, I don't drive, right? Everywhere I need to go, I had a ride. Every job I had was within walking distance of that sober house. Fast forward, I get my license back. About a month ago, they tried to revoke it because of some clerical error. Again, I'm freaking out, you know. This faith that I have in God, I have faith in God when everything is good. It's easy to have faith when everything is good. But where's my faith when things aren't going my way? When I'm looking at turbulence and, and, and turmoil, right? That is when I need him the most. Seventeen years in this deal. I am blown away by the power of this God, right? Of my God. Again, I don't go out shouting from the rooftops. I'm not one of those holy rollers and stuff. I know who I work for. I know whose I am. And uh, God willing, you know, I keep striving for this thing because the more sober I am, the more narrow this road gets. I talked about my ex-girlfriend last weekend or last week. Again, not rendered white as snow. I hurt her. I know the exact nature of the harm. There's going to be an amends that has to be made. But I can't, I can't make that amends without at first making an appointment with her and seeing if she's wanting to hear that amends, right? Because she was my best friend, you know what I mean? And uh, I want to make that right one of these days. But for now, I'll just be content to, to keep doing his will, his work, and um, hopefully... Somebody who's new tonight, heard something tonight that gives you a hope that you don't have to go and, 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 and go back to the life you were living, right? There is a way out if you want this thing, right? Just give it some people armed with the facts about themselves in this program. Surrender, submit, obey, and I promise you, by the end of the work, <laughs> to the best of your ability, you can get this thing. So thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Keith. That was fantastic as always. So next, I'm going to bring up uh, Joey, the secretary. Back, and I am Joey, your recovered alcoholic secretary. Hello, everyone. 
Uh, in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Um, as they're going around, all you folks on the Zoom world and Facebook world, um, you have the opportunity to give back to A via AA.org. Um, they are taking contributions online, so it's a beautiful way to help the, the program um, that has given us so much. Um, so go make those contributions if you can. All right. At this time, I've asked my good friend James to read the recovered statement here at this meeting. I introduce myself, um, Keith as well, others you will hear, recovered alcoholic, um, um, rather than recovering. We're going to explain exactly what that means and why we say it. Uh, go ahead. James, recovered alcoholic. Uh, recovered, we are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you. All right, thank you, James. All right. Uh, 1940s-style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate, which is a beautiful thing. All right, at this time, I'm going to ask for a show of hands of all recovered alcoholics. Beautiful. Everyone in the Zoom as well, please. And now, um, please raise your hand if you need a sponsor. Don't be shy. We all love those that want to get help. That's a beautiful thing. Um, And all you people in the Zoom room, anyone that you saw hand raised that needs a sponsor, please reach out to them. Help them bring them to God. Um, All right. Last meeting of the month is today. Yeah. Hey, we made it, guys. All right. Anyone celebrating a year or more, um, God bless you. That's great. Good for you. Go get a sponsee. Go out there and you celebrate with getting a sponsee, huh? All right. Because that's what we do. That's, I'm sorry. All right. But it's still good to do. All right. Uh, please join us also on Monday night's Big Book Study here in this room um, with Mike Chase, Old Bill, Chris on Traditions, and Doc, hopefully. Um, and it's where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowship starts at 630 in the Zoom room. And the Big Book Study itself will start at 7.15. Another way to help um, contribute to AA, um, go on your local intergroup websites and uh, go um, pick up some CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries. Uh-huh. <laughs> Drive through. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Mike, Chase, Mike Chase is a beautiful man. All right. All right. Um, 
We meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. Thank you, Joe. On top of that wealth of information that he just shared, um, we actually have... Our sessions are podcasted. This session, past sessions, if you want to compare Keith's t- session from tonight from Keith's session from five years ago, by all means, whatever you know, makes you happy. Um, that's all on alcoholicsandgod.org. <laughs> um, again, once again, I'd like to invite you to our, our Monday night big book session um, with the, the three musketeers holding it down. Um, if anyone wants to thank tonight's speaker, text them, write it in Zoom, and we'll pass the message along. We are going to close with the Lord's Prayer, and we'll see you all on Thursday or Monday. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Arise the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Hey, hey, hey. Ooh. Heart is heavy. Soul is thirsty. Body's aching.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
plugging my guitar And I play my songs And people sing along And stomp their feet and raise their arms song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Shot. 